First Samuel, as we continue on in our study, and by the way, I invite you to stick around just for a few minutes right as soon as we're done with our study tonight because we have a baptism that we're going to do. <laughs> you don't even know who. Doesn't matter, right? And yet it does matter. And I'm not gonna point Lauren out to you because I don't wanna embarrass her in front of everybody. You know, it's not like she's gonna be standing up there in front of everybody anyway, so. First Samuel chapter four, or sorry, chapter five. At the close of chapter four, we saw a dying woman who names her soon-to-be orphaned son Ichabod, glory gone. It's a sad ending to this part of the story. Her husband was dead, her father-in-law dead. The ark of God was in the hands of the enemy Philistines. And in verse 20 of chapter four, we're told that about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her, or the women who stood by her said to her, do not be afraid for you've given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She called the boy Ichabod saying the glory has departed or has, has been exiled uh, from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband uh, they were both dead. So then she says in verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. Let me ask you this, mor this morning, this evening, do you ever feel like your situation is Ichabod? You ever feel like the glory's departed or worse, gone into exile? Do you ever feel like David who said in Psalm 10, verse one, why do you stand afar off, Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This would be a common theme for David. He would start many of the Psalms this way. He would always end in a good place except for one time, but most of the Psalms, with the exception is Psalm 88. Every other Psalm ends in faith, many of them begin in struggle. Psalm 13, verse one, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. That's not a good place to be. Or how about Asaph in Psalm 77, verse eight says, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? And at that point in that Psalm, Psalm 77, there's a Selah, there's a pause as though to wait and think about these questions. And then Asaph says, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now listen to that. It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed, Psalm 77, verse 10. The right hand of the Most High is Jesus. Does Jesus change? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? So how could Asaph, the psalmist, say this? How could God have this recorded in the scriptures? Listen, he doesn't say it's to my grief. He doesn't say it causes me grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. What he says is, it is my grief. That is 
my grief makes it seem like the right hand of the Most High has changed. My grief is twisting this. My he recognizes it's not that Jesus has changed. It's not that God has changed. It's that I am failing to see him as he is. It's that I am looking through my pain and therefore I can't see that he is there and he is true and he is faithful and he is the same. It's in my grief, I can't see. I feel like the glory's gone. What do we do in those times of, of emptiness and loneliness? And the Bible always has answer for that. Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I'll tell you what, he's not exalted in the earth right now. He is in places, pockets tonight. I think he was exalted among you. And in times of worship, people gather and, and, and the Lord is exalted. So yes, there are times, but the world does not exalt the Lord. The globe, the people in mass are not lifting up worship and exaltation to the Lord. But he says, I will be exalted in the earth. That day is coming. So you just cease striving. Know that I am God. And then Psalm 46, 11 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. And we think the Selah in the Psalms is a pause, a musical interlude to think about what you've just sung. Think about this. Pause, rest in this. The Lord of hosts is with us. I want a Selah in that place tonight. Pause and consider the fact that he is God and there is no other. And whether we feel it or not, the Lord of hosts is with us. He is with us. Father, I just ask that as we continue on into this story of the ark and of what took place at this time, that you will give us insight and understanding. We always pray this. I pray again for revelation. But Lord, not like some kind of, some kind of mystical spiritual revelation. I just pray for practical reality to hit our hearts and our minds tonight. I pray that we would receive what you have to teach us. And I ask this, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. First Samuel chapter five, verse one, now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face. I would have said he's fallen on his fat face, but that's not what, it just says he's fallen on his face. To the ground before the ark of the Lord, so that they took Dagon and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, Neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. How weird is that? This is where the story gets bizarre. It becomes very strange. Chapter four, the Israelites take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and into battle. They foolishly do so. They violate the law of God to do it. They go into this battle and the, the priests Hophni and Phinehas are killed. The Ark is taken captive. Uh, 30,000 
Israelites are routed and murdered that day, killed in the battlefield, and that's that chapter. And then this ark is taken into the temple of the pagan deity, the pagan god, Dagon, and we read what happens next. Bizarre. 1 John 5, 21, John the apostle says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And this was part of what we talked about on Sunday. Idolatry is alive and well today, and we practice it in our lives, oftentimes without even realizing it. Anytime we trade out authenticity for artifacts. Anytime we choose religious relics instead of a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's idolatry. So it's no different now than it was then and in the first century where we see John say, little children, and he's talking to church people, he's talking to Christians, guard yourselves from idols. Be on the alert, be aware, because you can make anything your idol. And we looked at and talked about a few of those on Sunday morning. But there's also the issue not only of idolatry, but exploitation. That if we, if we use the things of God Even things like prayer, if we use prayer for the purpose of manipulating God to our will, it's exploitation. And I've had to really struggle with that and think that through and process, are my prayers about trying to talk God into doing what I need done? Am I trying to manipulate him to my will or am I aligning myself to his will, whatever that is? Now, There's idolatry, there's exploitation, and then there's full-on rejection. And that's what we see with the Philistines who have rejected the one true God for their God, Dagon. And what happens if we reject him for some other faith, for some other God, he's eventually gonna knock down all these deities. He will knock down false systems. And listen to me, not because they're a threat to him. What happens in the temple of Dagon doesn't happen because Dagon is any kind of threat to the Lord God. God will knock down false systems of belief and deities because they're a threat to us. They're a threat to us. They stand between us, get in the way of us and a relationship with the Lord, which is why back in Exodus chapter 20, he said, you shall have no other gods before me. He said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands implied of generations to those who love me and keep My commandments, the Lord says, I'm a jealous God. Oh, so God's jealous. We've talked about this. He's passionate. He is passionate for you and doesn't want anything to cloud or misdirect or detour you from a relationship with him. He wants a pure, real, authentic relationship. And all this other stuff gets in the way. Isaiah 44, verse 12 says, the man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. We're talking about the idol maker. The idol maker is a weak human being making something that has no strength in it and no ability to do anything for anyone. All Dagon is known for in the Bible is falling over. 
That's the best it can do. And by the way, he can't even get himself back up. The people have to come in and prop him up. Do you want that kind of God? A God that you have to prop up? And after offering the thirsty woman a well of water springing up to eternal life, Jesus said to her, God is spirit, and those who worship must do so in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth, authentically. In truth before the Lord, genuine worship, worshiping him for who he is. Now, Dagon is the god of the Philistines. I think that's obvious. Some say that the idol was half man, half fish. So imagine a big stone merman. That's the god Dagon. The Hebrew root, and the reason why some people think it was a a half man, half fish, is the root word in the Hebrew is is two letters, Dalet and Gimel, and it's uh, DG, which is the word in Hebrew for fish. So DG, the very name of Dagon, they think perhaps was the half man, half fish. Also, the Philistines were a coastal people. You know this, we talked about them being a seafaring people who came across from uh, the Isle of of, uh, Kaftor and coming across from Cyprus. And so these people were seafaring, so having a fish god makes sense, right? But there's other uh, emphasis on Dagon being a god of the grain or god of the corn The Hebrew root also could be Dalet Gimel Nun, D-G-N, and if it's D-G-N, that word in the Hebrew is grain or seed. So he could be the fish god, he could be the the grain god, or, or he could be both. There are some places where we have evidence that he was referred to as the lord of the seed, It, again, may have been both fish god and god who presides over the crops, at least in the thinking of the Philistines. It's mentioned in the Armana letters and in certain texts from a Mesopotamian city that was on the Euphrates in the region of Syria today. This city was called Mari. And in the city of Mari, there was worship of this Dagon by Amorites. And the Babylonian king, you may have heard this name from history class way back when, Hammurabi. Hammurabi credited Dagon with his military victory over the city of Mari. And Ugaritic texts call it the father of Baal Hadad. Those are all, I mean, you can, if you really want to do a deep dive into Dagon, feel free because he's the kind of guy that does a deep dive right onto his face. <laughs> but whatever the origin, whatever the history, it doesn't really matter. He was here to Dagon tomorrow. <laughs> so you can't do this story without using that. Come on, come on. So notice the pattern here, what happens. First, Dagon is found face down before the ark of God in the posture of worship. You think maybe God is sending a message to the Philistines? You're worshiping this fish-faced God. I'm gonna put him face down before my ark. Get the message, get the message. They don't, they just prop him back up. Oh, that's weird. (laughs) Our God fell over, weird. So they prop him back up. The Lord says in Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn to myself The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul took that in Philippians chapter two, verse 10, said, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And by the way, that is his followers and that is his enemies alike. Every knee will bow. 
The day is coming where every knee of every person in existence and even of the spiritual authorities in the heavenly places of those under the earth, of those in the sea, everything, everyone will come before the Lord Jesus and will bow down in worship. God is giving the Philistines here an opportunity to recognize that this is what happens. No matter what or who you are, you fall down before my presence. Well, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. So they had to prop him back up. And I ask you the question, what kind of God needs its devotees to prop it up after it's fallen down? Let me tell you something about the Lord. He doesn't need you or me to prop him up. We don't worship him. We don't prop him up in worship because he needs us to. God doesn't require or command worship of his people because he is so arrogant that he just needs to be worshiped. No, we worship him because he is innately worthy of all praise and honor and glory, not because he needs it, but because he deserves it. He also knows another truism in our lives is not only does he deserve it, we need to worship him. It changes us, makes us who we were meant to be. Well, the first day, Dagon falls down, face down before the ark of God. The second day, verse four, we see that Dagon is now found headless and handless. I can imagine the priest walking in there on the second day going, Dagon it? <laughs> verse five tells us that this started a custom in Ashdod. This is remarkable, of not stepping on the threshold of the temple of Dagon because his head and his hands were found there which tells us they did not get the second message. They completely missed it. Rather than recognizing this is a pattern now and there's a message coming through from the real God, they say, oh, we can't touch this threshold because his hands and head did. How does hands and head touch it? They were broken off. In fact, it's worse than that. They weren't just broken off. They were cut off. And you need to know because the Hebrew language is kerutot, Kerutot, there in, in verse four, that both the palms of his hands and his head were cut off on the threshold. They didn't break because Dagon fell over, which you might imagine, well, this stone statue falls over, the head breaks off, the hands break, I can see that happening. No, no, they are cut off. And the, the language is clear, so I really think what you see there is a very clean cut of the head and the hands of this stone idol. Why? The head was cut off because God will cut off false wisdom. He will cut off foolishness and stupidity and empty-headedness. That was an empty-headed God that went down before the ark. His hands were cut off because God will cut off the pretense of power. There's no power in the hands of idols. There's no power in the hands of idols that are created by the hands of a man who himself gets weak and hungry. Isaiah 41, 22, let them bring forth, the Lord speaks of idols and, and gods and false deities, let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming. 
Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. I mean, this is just dripping with divine sarcasm. Behold, you're of no account, the Lord says, and your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. Choosing the handless, headless, foolish, powerless gods of this world. It's an abomination before the Lord. So again, God is sending a message. First, worship me and worship me alone. Secondly, you got no power. You got no wisdom in this God. An obvious message to the Philistines that their God is brainless and impotent. (laughs) If we learn from the Lord the first time, it will tend to topple our false beliefs. I've told you over the years of teaching through the Bible together here at the bridge, it has toppled so many false beliefs of mine. Not that I was way out there in some kind of weird faith or anything, but things that I grew up, traditions I I grew up with, I assumed, things that I just thought were the way it was until I got to the word and realized, wow, that's completely different than than what I thought. The first time God gets that message across, if we learn from him, it will topple our false beliefs. The second time, he'll cut off human wisdom and power. He's gonna do what it takes. And we realize our foolishness and our weakness before the Lord. But if we keep rejecting him, if we keep refusing repentance, if we keep putting him off, it will only get worse. The Bible says in Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. And the truth is there that sometimes we look around and we say, well, that guy's rich, that guy's got all kinds of fame, that guy's got all kinds of power. Give it time, watch what happens to him. How many wildly wealthy superstars in the world in their lives? How many people who seem to have it made at one point, you go, well, how come he's getting all this blessing and goodness and wonder? You don't know that dude's life. The reality is that the way of the sinner is hard. This is something else I think the Lord would have us understand. If I'm choosing to walk in sin, if I'm choosing to walk outside of his will, it's just gonna be hard on me. Life will be more difficult. Well, Rick, I I became a Christian years ago and my life hasn't been a cakewalk. I understand that. But there's a complete difference. The way of the transgressor is hard and watch it play out here, verse six. Now, The hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them, and they said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, the uh, ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of God, of, uh, of the God of Israel around. And after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great confusion. I'll, I'll tell you what that confusion is in just a second. And he smote the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. These people do not learn. 
And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites, well, they cried out saying, they have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. <laughs> now the ark of God, chapter six, verse one, had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. Seven months they're playing this game, transporting it from one city to the next. And the same Horrible situation just follows. Wherever the ark goes, that's gonna happen at the next city. They're not learning the lesson. They said, verse three, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, empty but you shall surely return him uh, to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed or, yeah, is not removed from you. And then they said, well, what shall the guilt offering which we shall return to him be? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice. There's your confusion. A rodent infestation to the point that it was freaking everybody out and confusing every city, everywhere the ark was taken. Let's do five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines for one plague was on all of you and on all your lords so you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods, and your land. And they still don't get it because they just want him to ease up on them and their gods. They don't see what's going on here. There's tumors and there's confusion. Let's be clear. The confusion, again, was a massive, mousy assault. Mice everywhere. The tumors... <laughs> were most likely huge burning hemorrhoids. Let's just call it what it is. I mean, it's disgusting. It's okay to be a little unnerved by this. I would not wanna be a Philistine in the land in those days. The word tumors, we see in chapter five, verses six, nine, 12, and chapter six, verses four and five, it's the word ho-apalim. Ho-apalim in Hebrew is boils. Boils. Now, that same word is also used for hills, mounds, and strongholds. These boils became strongholds of the people of the Philistines. Well, Rick, if it just means boils, then where do you get hemorrhoids? Are you just trying to be gross? Oh, no, I'm not just trying to be gross. Chapter 6, verses 11 and 17, where you see the word uh, tumors there, it's tehorim. Tehorim means ulcerated hemorrhoids. That's what's going on. I, I wanna be clear about this. Again, not to be gross, but just to say that, th that taking the ark really backfired on them. And I wanna tell y'all, when going into battle, you need to be sure to protect the rear. Anyway, this is what's happening in the, in the land of the Philistines. By the way, it's not the country of the Philistines, verse one, it's the fields. The word is fields or land of the Philistines. Because I told you, they weren't, they weren't a country. They were five city-states. But in this region, this is horrible. 
They are having this horrible outbreak of mice everywhere. And if you wanna try and scientifically figure it out, it's possible that the mice were carrying some kind of disease that was infecting all of the people and they were ending up with hemorrhoids because of the disease, but it was bad. We can laugh a bit because of the idea of what God inflicted on these people, but this was a very bad situation. What really makes me laugh is that they decide to make golden hemorrhoids. How do you even craft that? Who's, I mean, I don't even want to think about it. They call someone and want someone in to be a model. I mean, this is just disgusting. And you know, it's funny. We were in uh, Corinth several years ago. And there in Corinth, there's a museum that had all of these artifacts that were discovered in Greece and in Corinth. Do you remember that? And some of the artifacts were nothing less than, than disgusting. Uh, um, let me just say, uh, I can't even say it. They were just disgusting. They weren't hemorrhoids, but, but they were representations of, of the physical body, okay? But just of certain parts. And they're just all lined up on a shelf and you're going, okay, don't need to look at that anymore. You remember this, Cheryl? Yeah, <laughs> Cheryl's over there with the camera going, and I'm like, stop that. Sicko. It's early pornography. I don't know what it was, disgusting. Anyway, so they make these golden hemorrhoids and they make these golden mice and this is gonna be an offering to God. This is how, how absolutely messed up idolatry is and, and, and paganism. And it takes them seven months. It goes from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. They're just going city to city. Well, maybe this city is strong enough to withstand it. Maybe it's just, you know, a, a, a coincidence that these bad things are happening. Well, let's, let's move that ark of the God of Israel. And everywhere it goes, this stuff breaks out against the enemies of God. My friends, sadly, when people choose to walk apart from the spirit of God, for all the proof of wisdom or power and finally judgment that God offers, they're going to respond like the Philistines. They're gonna say things like, get the ark out of here. Remove the Bible from, from your workspace, that offends me. Get, get the 10 commandments out from the public places. Uh, tear down the Christian poster that's in the school hallway because it offends me. Why does it offend you? Because you're in rebellion to the God of truth. And people who are in rebellion do not want any reminder of the presence of God, be it the Ark of the Covenant that they had to move out of the cities or any of these other things. And we see it in our culture and in our country, and it's a constant thing, a driving out of any and all things Christian. And this goes on in, in the Philistine land for seven months. Why? Does it go on and on and on? You'd think they'd figure this out in a few weeks and get rid of the thing completely. But it goes on and on. Why? Because lifestyle sin is very hard to give up. Well, let me, let me uh, read something to you here. You may be familiar with this. Galatians chapter five, verse 16, Paul says, I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, think in terms of lifestyle. This is, we get into patterns and, and habits in our lives of, of how we live. The Philistines were in a pattern of living that included the worship of this God, Dagon, and what was happening is as the ark of God was in their land, it was upsetting their lifestyle. It was inflicting them 
with pain and discomfort and problems, they had to get it out. Well, listen to this list. Paul says the flesh, Galatians 5.17, sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. The spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit of God. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. If you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I mean, Paul's suggesting the list could go on, and I think we could fill it in really easily. But he says, things of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Listen to the lifestyle difference. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the nine things of the fruit of the Spirit. You read that and you go, okay, who doesn't want that? That sounds so good, especially in comparison to the other list, which does not sound interesting whatsoever. He says, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's the lifestyle. Listen, if we live by the Spirit, let's walk by the Spirit. Let's do the things the Spirit does. Let's bear the fruit of the Spirit present in our lives. Let that be the very lifestyle that we adhere to as opposed to the lifestyle of the flesh. Either way, lifestyle is difficult to break. So if you're walking by the Spirit, by the fruit of the Spirit, that's gonna be evident in your lifestyle. And you know what? That's gonna be pretty consistent. But if you're living by the flesh, it's really hard to break out of that. And so you have two choices. Send the things of God out of your way or repent. Turn to God and he will heal you. Verse seven of chapter six. Now therefore, they're talking about how to get this ark back to Israel. Now therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milch cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you return to him as a guilt offering, you know, the, the, the golden mice and the golden hemorrhoids, uh, put them in a, uh, in a box by its side and then send it away that it may go and watch. If it goes by the way of its own territory to Bet Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. That is, if this, if this ark of God on the cart with this guilt offering led by these two cows, just set loose, if it makes its way back to Bet Shemesh, Israel territory, then we'll know that the God of the Israelites is the one behind all this. He's the one who did this, okay? So then he says, watch, and, and if not, we'll know that it was not his hand that struck us, that it just happened to us by chance. Just a bad case of hemorrhoids for the country. Then the men did so, and they took two milch cows 
and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their <clears throat> tumors. <laughs> and the cows took the straight way in the direction of Bet Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Bet Shemesh. Milch cows, if you've ever heard that phrase before, milch cows are mama cows who are nursing their calves. That's a milch cow. So take a couple of cows that are in the process. They have little babies. Take them away from their babies, hook them to the cart, and send them on their way. Why do that? Because instinctively, those mama cows would turn around and go right back to where their calves were. So they're, trying, they're, they're basically stacking the cards. They're playing the odds against God. And they're saying, let's do this, because what should happen is those cows ought to return right back to their calves. So two milch cows, put them on there. They should not have gone straight without turning to the right or the left, right along the highway to Bet Shemesh. And yet that's exactly what they did. It also says, note that it says they were lowing as they went. That's mooing. That's what mama cows do who are looking for their calves. They're lowing, they're mooing, but they can't go. What, what the Bible is implying here, I believe, is that the mama cows wanted to find their calves, but they could not, they were compelled to go to Bet Shemesh because the Lord was taking the ark back home. That they really didn't have a choice and they had the opposite direction from their babies. I wonder, since these mama cows are supernaturally directed, does that make them holy cows? I know, I know, that's utter nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> Could this humor get any worse? <laughs> you, know, you know, Jake, that, that cow puns are actually the lowest form of humor? You want me to stop milking this? Okay, so verse 13. Now the people of Bet Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. So the Israelites, they're out there in the fields. Here comes the ark on the cart. By the way, when David decides to bring the ark up to Jerusalem, do you remember what he does the first time? He puts it on a cart, which is not how they were supposed to carry the ark. Two poles were to be put in the rings on the sides of the ark that it might be only carried. It's a pagan idea to put the ark on the cart. So Lord willing, we get to the story where David brings the, cart up, the, the ark up to Israel. We'll, we'll revisit that, but keep that kind of in the back of your brain. That's a pagan idea. Put the box on a cart. That's what you'll do. And so the cart came into the field of Joshua the, the Bet Shemite, verse 14, and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with that was with it, that's the box of the golden tumors and mice, in which were the articles of gold, and they put them on a large stone, and the men of Bet Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day, no doubt with, with word of what had happened. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. 
and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Betshemite. That tells us something that the writer of 1 Samuel is talking about this stone that, that was still in place to the, at the time of the writing. So it's another hint that the writer was Samuel himself, all right? But verse 19 tells us that he, that is the Lord, struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. I know what some of you are gonna say. Hold the thought. The men of Beth Shemesh, verse 20, said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come, come down and take it up to you. <laughs> so they're doing the exact same thing that the Philistines did. Get it out of here. We can't stand the presence of holiness. We can't take this. Okay, what, what just happened here? They opened the ark and looked in it. And you got the final scene of the first Indiana Jones movie. The thing is, if you have an NIV translation of the Bible or an ESV translation or perhaps some others, when you read uh, verse 19, you read that he struck down of all the people 70 men. You may have heard me say 50,000 and 70 men. So there is a discrepancy there. Some translations go with 70. And the reason they go with 70 is there are older manuscripts, there are older translations that say 70 that left off the 50,000. And with that, uh, the scholars who, who believe it was only 70 men, they turn around and say, yeah, but there's no way there could have been that many people at Bet Shemesh. It, it wasn't a large city, so you couldn't have 50,000 people show up. Well, you, you think 50,000 from Israel could show up there? So there's this discrepancy that, that, that sits there. Understand, and, and I'm gonna go with 50,070 for two reasons. Number one, the most ancient Hebrew manuscripts translate this 70 and 50,000 men. In the Hebrew, that's the way it reads, that there were 70 and 50,000 men who were struck down that day. So the oldest manuscripts say 50,070. But with that, in addition to that, people say, well, that number, it just seems so big. Let me, let me see if I can give you a picture of how big the number is. Lumen Field, where the Seahawks play, it seats 68,740 fans. This is 50,000. Imagine being in Lumen Field and the entire stands instantly, everybody's dead. But, you know, 18,000 people. All of the stands filled with corpses. I mean, that, that, it's, it's a frightening thought. I mean, man, if that happened on opening day, so much for the 12th man, right? <laughs> the number seems big to us when we look at it and we try to understand it. But if you look back in chapter four, verse 10, there's a verse that there is not a discrepancy about, and that is that 30,000 Israelites were killed in battle, right? You remember that? 30,000 Israelites killed in battle, and in the Bible, that is called a great slaughter, which is exactly what it's called uh, in verse 19. 50,070 men, the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. 
a great slaughter is 30,000. That's a great slaughter. A great slaughter is not 70. 50,000 would be a great slaughter. So I'm gonna go with 50,070 that were wiped out because they took the lid off the box. Listen, we don't change the Bible to make it easier to take. We take God at his word. This is what he says, therefore, this is what I'm going to believe. And the Lord saw fit to report the number as 50,070 in the oldest manuscripts that we have, so I'm, I'm not gonna even argue that. But there's a more difficult question than how many people were struck down. A bigger question that we gotta deal with, and that is this. What was so deadly about removing the cover of the ark just to double check the contents? All they did was take the lid off and 50,070 people died and those of you especially who are more compassionately minded than I am would look at that and say, how is that okay? How is that right? What do we even do with that? Well, we're gonna talk about that on Sunday, so I invite you to come back for that. Chapter seven. And the men, I really am, I'm gonna, we need time to work through that one, so we will talk about it Sunday morning. But the men of Kiriath-Jerim, chapter seven, came and they took the ark of the Lord and they brought it into the house of Avinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And from that day, the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim and the uh, time was long, it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It's gonna stay at the house of Avinadab until David's first lame attempt to bring it up to Jerusalem. That is not gonna go well. So there will be a second attempt, but in between it's gonna go to another guy's house. But in the meantime, for 20 years, it's just gonna sit in the home of Avinadab. Avinadab, by the way, is a great name. It means my father is willing. My father is willing, as though to say, that our Father God, the Lord, was willing for his ark to stay at this man's house. I would say to you, there's something special about this guy to have the ark in his house and, and not to be wiped out or at least get a bad case of hemorrhoids, okay? He is a good guy. They consecrate a priest named Eleazar. Eleazar, which means God, my help. So we have my Father is willing and God, my help, and that's where the ark remains. Good names for those who are willing to keep an eye on the ark without looking into it. But during this time, notice the wording that there in verse two tells us, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. They lamented, not they lamented for the loss of the 50,000, not they lamented for the mess that they had made of things. They lamented after the Lord. What does that mean? It means they're getting it. The Philistines never got it. The Israelites are starting to come around. They're starting to understand and, and get what's going on here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret to salvation. You may be sorrowful. You may be brought to a point of sorrow for your heart to turn to the Lord and for you to lament that damaged or broken relationship. It may cause sorrow. That's a good sorrow. There is godly sorrow. It is a good sorrow because it, re it produces repentance without regret. However, the sorrow 
of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is I just feel guilty. I just feel sorry for myself. I just feel bad that, you know, I've got these tumors to deal with. That's the sorrow of the world. Total contrast. There had been so much death surrounding the wrongful mishandling of the Ark of the Covenant of God, but their sorrow now is directed to Yahweh. This is a godly sorrow of repentance. So thankfully now in this story arc, no pun intended, we come around to the point where the people of Israel who did not get it at the beginning of chapter four are beginning to understand their broken relationship with the Lord their God and they are lamenting and they are sorrowful. This story is not about the return of the ark. This story is about the return of the heart. The return of the heart of the people. And I love verse three. In fact, this is one worth memorizing in our own lives. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtarot from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Man, return, remove, redirect. Turn to the Lord 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, there is one God. Now listen to me on this. There's one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And when we are sorrowful, when we come to the table of the Lord, when we're sorrowful thinking about our Lord Jesus and his sacrifice, it is a sorrow producing repentance leading to salvation. That's a good sorrow. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what you did. It is a sorrow that causes us to be able to return to the Lord, to remove those things from among us that get in the way and to redirect our hearts to him. That's always his, his game plan with us in our lives. It's always about pulling us closer, getting us back, turning us around if we've wandered off the path because let's face it, we're all like little kids that you can't herd all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to his own way. I mean, that is part and parcel, a picture of humanity. And the Lord is corralling. I love how Jesus even says of Jerusalem, 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 you who stoned the prophets and killed those who were sent to you, how long I have wanted to gather you together like a, a mother hen gathers its chicks under its wing. So that's the Lord gathering, saying return. Return to me and remove those things that are in the way and direct your hearts to me. Come back to me. Verse four, so the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtarot and served the Lord alone. Note that Baals and Ashtarot, they're both in the plural, which means they were all over the land by now. And the Israelites said, all right, we'll get rid of them. These things are in the way. And then Samuel said in verse five, gather to Israel, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now, stay there for just a second. As we read, there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, that is Christ Jesus. In this age, in this dispensation in which we live, we don't need another mediator. There is no other mediator. There is no go-between. I'm not your go-between. You go directly to him. Your path to the Lord, your prayers go through Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and men. 
The Bible also says, Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit helps our weakness, for we don't even know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I've said recently that's either he interprets our groanings or he groans on our behalf in, in words understood by the Father. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to God. That's talking about Jesus. Romans 8, 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So he's, who's the mediator? Jesus is. What is Jesus doing? He's interceding. He's praying. Nate, he's praying for you. You know that. He's the one interceding. Had a, had a precious time of prayer with Jim Krause and, and with Nate yesterday that was kind of unplanned and it happened and I was so blessed to be part of that. But you know what? It wasn't me and Jim praying for you and it wasn't even you praying for yourself. It was Jesus interceding and that's always the deal. He is the great intercession. But you know what's remarkable to me? We get to do it too. He's the great intercessor, but we get to intercede. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.5, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions, and the word petitions there is intercessions, with thanksgiving may be made on, be made on behalf of all men. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, with all prayer and petition, and again, the word is intercession, Pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition, intercession for the saints. Jesus is our mediator. We need no other. You don't have to go through me or any other leader in a church situation. You go directly through Jesus to the Father, but we also have the privilege of interceding for each other, of praying for each other. This, I love our prayer chain. I've never liked the word chain. It just sounds heavy. But you know, our prayer team, you know, and if you have a prayer need, you let us know. You can let anyone on staff know, I got a prayer need, we'll get it. The, the person you, you wanna get straight to is Jackie, and she's sitting there in the back, and Jackie's been doing this prayer team for 20 years, just disseminating whatever the prayer, and the prayer comes in, and it goes straight to her, and she sends it out, and you can know that immediately you've got, how many people are, do we know how many people? Close to 100 people are on our prayer team and are immediately now praying for whatever that need. And those needs, my friends, are great and they're growing. And you can, if you wanna be on that, talk to Jackie or just, again, talk to me or Les or Jake or anyone on staff and we'll connect you and get you so that you're receiving those emails and you can get on that prayer team. But we are called and it makes such a difference to have brothers and sisters who will pray with you. And for you to be there to pray for someone else, you have no idea until you're the one being prayed for. And, and, and many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been that person. You've been sitting there and, said, and you've said, boy, could, could you guys just pray? And people start praying for you and over you and, and your faith just starts to grow again. This is so valuable. God has given this to us. And so what we see happening here is the people, finally, they turn to Samuel and they say, would you pray for us? We, just, we need you to pray. Verse six, 
they gathered to Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. They fasted on that day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord and Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. It doesn't mean that he came down on them. The word judged there is yishpot, which is a variation of another word that you should be familiar with because we just studied the book of the Shopatim, the judges. What Samuel does here, the word judged, it's, it's also translated that he pled for, that he pled for the people. And notice, they poured out water. What's, what's that about? They're pouring out water? It's a picture, it's a cultural picture of, of sorrow and the shedding of tears. They're pouring it out, even as they themselves were likely at the time weeping in repentance as Samuel is interceding for them and petitioning for them on their behalf before the Lord. I love what the, the Targum says, translates this verse as they poured out their hearts in penitence as water before the Lord. And that's not a direct translation. They poured out water and they were penitent before the Lord. But the picture here is so beautiful of tears and a pouring out of, of brokenness. This tender, beautiful scene of mass Israelite repentance and renewal at Mizpah before the Lord. But what does the enemy do with someone who repents? He attacks. He immediately attacks. Listen, just because you're turning to Jesus, just because you're getting right with God, doesn't mean that the devil's gonna go, oh, he repented, oh, she's turned to God, we'll leave him alone now. In fact, that's like throwing fuel on the fire. That's like saying, sick him to a bulldog, and Satan will attack, and of course he does. Verse seven, now when the Philistines heard the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. All the people are gathered there. They're having a wonderful worship service of repentance, of pouring out their hearts to the Lord. Sometimes Christians don't get this. Sometimes we'll have maybe a night of repentance or a gathering where we're just brokenhearted before God or things really change and we really, we sense the moving of the Holy Spirit and it's wonderful and we go home and our heads hit the pillow and we go, oh, thank you, Jesus, what a wonderful night. We get up in the morning, go to work and we have a terrible day. And I've actually heard people say, why would the Lord do that to me? Don't you understand you have an enemy? Just as Israel had the Philistines so we have the devil, and he will immediately attack. And that's exactly what they do. They're still at Mizpah. They haven't even left the, the place of worship and repentance before the lords of the Philistines gather their armies, and they come up now against Israel. Uh, clearly, the hemorrhoids have, have subsided some, and they come on the attack. And in verse eight, then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Go back to chapter four. Verse three, where they're in a similar situation. They've already lost 4,000 men in battle, so what do they do? When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay, you know what happened? They got up Monday morning and they wondered why we had such a great time that you know, and now it's, uh, why is it so bad? They say, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And you know how badly that went. 
Look at the difference now. This is a people who recognized in their brokenness and repented. They've come back to the Lord. They've cried out to the Lord. Samuel is praying for them to the return to the Lord. They're doing that. They're in the process of that. And now, now when the Philistines attack, what do they do? Go get the ark. No, no. They say, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. I love this. And the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. Don't stretch this out like this was a long period of time. This was happening very quickly. Oh no, here come the Philistines. Samuel cry out for us. He offers the lamb. He's in the process. Here come the Philistines. The lamb is being offered. Samuel is crying out to the Lord. And while that is taking place and the Philistines are drawing near, the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Bet-Kar. It says that he roared literally with a great thunder, the phrase in the Hebrew, Yarim Bakol Gadol. Kol is the word for thunder. This is a word we've looked at before. You may or may not remember, but kol, the word for thunder, it's used seven times in Psalm 29, Let me read this to you. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Coal. It's the same word that is used for thunder. The thunder of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord, sixth time it's used, shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare, and in his temple everything says glory, glory. The voice of the Lord, that's called the Psalm of the Seven Thunders, because that word coal, which translates voice or thunder, is used seven times. Do you remember in John chapter 12, it's the last week of of Jesus' life, and he's there in the temple courts and, and some of the guys come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, some Greeks wanna come and meet you. And Jesus gets very somber. And he says, my soul has become troubled. John 12, 27. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus becomes troubled because these Greeks wanna meet him. What's the deal? He recognizes that the times of the Gentiles is upon him. So he's seeing this. This is a defining moment. Now the Gentiles are coming around, and this is it. And so there on that last week, he says, I'm troubled. Father, glorify your name, Jesus says. And it says a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd who stood by heard it, and they were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. 
And what he's implying there is you heard the thunder. Everybody recognized, whether they understood what was said or not, everybody recognized that the thunder was in direct response to Jesus saying, Father, glorify your name. And so he said, this is so you understand. This is for your benefit. Revelation chapter 10, verse three, refers to the seven peals of thunder that utter their voices, and it's a a word, it's a euphemism for the voice of God. Voice of the seven thunders. Why are you talking about this, Rick? Let me ask you this question. How do you fight in God's holy war? You follow the thunder. Follow the thunder. Because this time, Back in the story, it is the Israelites who do the routing. The men of Israel, verse 11 again, went out from Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bet-Kar. So now they just chase him down because the Lord has thundered. He's already done the work. He's already confused them, routed them. They're running scared. And so the Israelites now are called to fight. Back in chapter four, it wasn't that they shouldn't have fought against the Philistines, it's just that they went first. So my suggestion is, follow the thunder. Let the Lord speak first. Wait for the Lord to move. Wait for God to speak, and that's how you fight the right way. For our part, we, we, we return, we repent, we redirect our hearts to the Lord. We pray to him. We pray for each other, we intercede, we let him confuse the enemy. Let him confuse the enemy. He'll do it. He'll confuse the enemy, you let him do that. For your part, you pray. By the way, I'm just just gonna say this, Nate, I don't wanna, Nate, I don't wanna put you on the spot here, but if you're specifically on the prayer team, a a, a prayer call went out today related to Oak Harbor High School and, and and Nate is the principal, please pray. Please pray. And if you're sitting here going, well, I'm not on the prayer team and I don't even know what's going on, would you just pray for Nate and Oak Harbor High School? God knows what's going on, pray. We really right now need to engage. This is how we fight. Do you understand? This is how we fight. We don't fight by walking up and down streets holding up signs and protesting. We fight in prayer. It is the most powerful and effective tool of warfare that we have, and yet we often relegate it to what we'll do after we've done everything else. This is our fight, and there is a fight right now that is a big deal, and it is going on, and God has placed a servant, he's placed more than one, but there is a particular servant in Nate at Oak Harbor High School that needs people standing with him. You don't even have to know what's going on, just pray, just pray. Father, I pray right now for my brother and I pray for your will to be accomplished. I pray, Father, for a victory in the fight that's going on right now. And Lord, however you need to do this, confuse the enemy, soften the the hearts of people who are being used by the enemy, but I pray that you will bring about by your powerful right hand and in the name of Jesus, you will bring about truth and a victory that will honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our struggle, brothers and sisters, is not against flesh and blood. It is against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Israelites pursued the Philistines all the way as far as Bet-Kar. Do you know what Bet-Kar means? Bet-Kar is not house of the Honda. (laughs) Bet-Kar is house of the Lamb. 
They pursued them as far as the house of the lamb or the house of the ram. The enemy here was taken down at the house of the lamb. Our enemy was taken out at the house of the, ram, of the lamb, Jesus. That is the cross of Calvary where Jesus took away the sins of the world. Verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer. Remember what Ebenezer means. It means stone of help. Stone of help. This is where that... It's referred to as Ebenezer before in the story, but that's because that's what it ended up being called. So the writer is referring to the place where everybody would know where it was, but this is how it got named when he set up this stone, this Ebenezer stone, saying, thus far, the Lord has helped us. Now listen, as we close this out, two things to note. Samuel is gonna set up two kinds of stones. Two stones. Number one, a stone of remembrance. And that's this Ebenezer stone. He sets it up here. I don't know how big it was, but it was noticeable so that everyone passing by would notice the Ebenezer stone, the stone of help, and go, God helped us that day. It was God who routed the Philistines, not us. The stone of help, the stone of remembrance. It's like the stones that Joshua set up. Remember after they crossed the Jordan on dry ground? On the other side of the Jordan, he set up stones there. He also set up stones in the Jordan, stones of remembrance, memory stones, to help the people remember that God is their Ebenezer. You know, we have a memory stone right here on the stage behind me. You wouldn't know this, but it is for me. Some might know it. John, I'm sure, knows it. It's that seat right there, the one I was sitting on during worship. I, that was the, the chair that I used to use teaching in the barn. Uh, I needed something to sit on that was a little elevated uh, just because in the barn, the stage was, I think, six inches, so it was so low. And I said, hey, John, do you, you know of anything that we could use? He goes, yeah, I got something like that in my garage. I think it was, right? Either that or it was in your dining room or living room, but I won't tell Lisa. <laughs> and, and the next week, I come, and, and John brought that, and I used to just teach from that, and, and we've just kept it here. And I, I look at that, and I am reminded of how the, God, how the Lord has moved over the years. I'm reminded that God is our God. That's my stone of help. My little wooden, wooden chair with a plaid seat of help. That's my Ebenezer stone. There are Ebenezer stones in your life. There are stones of remembrance. And you might wanna pause and think about that. Do not make idols out of them. I've never once knelt down and worshiped there. Okay. Don't make idols out of them, but recognize that God does give us memory stones. He gives us the table of the Lord as a memory stone. We come back to it every week over and over. Why? To remember what Jesus did and proclaim his death until he comes. He's given us baptism. Lauren, you need to understand this. Baptism tonight is a memory stone for you. This is a point in your life that you can point to and you can say, I chose, I did. That's my memory stone. And he's given us different things in our lives in addition to these that we can look at and remember a stone of remembrance. You know what the psalmist says? Psalm 77, we started out there tonight. That was one of the verses I quoted to you. And, and he's crying out, will the Lord forget? Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never have compassion again? These questions are, are honestly and genuinely asked in that psalm. But then in the psalm, in verse 11, he says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. So as he's on his bed and he's, he's, weeps, he's wept so much, he, his tears are dry, his eyes are dry. And, and he's just saying, I, I don't have an answer. I don't know what to do with this. God, are you even there? And then he comes to this, I will remember. 
the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I'll meditate on all your work. I'll muse on all your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. I suggest Psalm 77 is one to keep uh, open, keep on your shelf if you're having a hard day, because in that Psalm, he struggles with some of the same questions we do, but he comes back to what I often say here, and that is Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. Remember what he's done. Remember the Lord, and suddenly, whatever our issue, whatever our struggle, we start to have faith again, and we start to realize, okay, I may not understand my life right now, but he is God, and he is a deliverer, and he is my savior. A stone of remembrance. And then verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines, by the way, side note, that doesn't mean the Philistines aren't still gonna be a pain in the neck. They are, they're gonna keep attacking whenever they can. They're gonna attack in little ways and in big ways, but Israel will continue to subdue them from this point forward. It's a good picture for the, the Christian walk. The cities which the Philistines had note this, had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And by the way, today, Israel has control of occupation of, as part of greater Israel, Ashdod and Ashkelon that were both Philistine territory. So even this day, you want a memory stone? The Jewish people inhabit Ashdod. I love it. Well, verse 15 tells us, well, hang on, hang on. Verse 14, again, tells us that these cities were restored to Israel. So just a reminder of the things that are stripped away from you, sometimes in battle, sometimes in difficulty. God is the great restorer. Joel chapter two, verse 25, I will make up for you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So if you feel swarmed, <laughs> stripped, or not on, return to the Lord. Remove the foreign gods. Redirect your heart to Jesus. He has a way of restoring even the things that I thought were lost. Okay, verse 15. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. He judged them. He was their shopatim or, or their, their shofat. Their, their judge, but not, it wasn't that he sat and he just made rulings. He pled for the people. He prayed for the people. As a Levite, he offered sacrifice for the people, and he did it on what was a 50-mile circuit between Bethel, or Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. It's a 50-mile circuit, but this was the circuit of Samuel. This is where he did his ministry. I like that because Samuel stayed in his lane. He knew where God called him and he stuck to it and he ministered there. Let me just tell you all something, that we are here in Oak Harbor for a reason. Remember God has placed us here. This is our circuit. If you are living in Anacortes, that's included in the circuit. I, the, it's so weird that, that God chose to put the church here, but we're on circuit between 
You know, south end of Whidbey Island over onto Fidalgo Island, we run a circuit that runs out onto the mainland. This is our circuit. We're here because God needs the light to shine here. He needs you, he needs me. He needs prayers coming up from this place. We're, this is our circuit. So Samuel did that, and then we end with verse 17. Then his house was, uh, his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel. So even from his own home, he's pleading for, praying for, uh, considering the needs of Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord, and that's the second stone. First stone is a stone of remembrance. This one is a stone of recognition. It's not an altar to replace or counter the the bronze altar in front of the tabernacle. That is still at Shiloh. But at Ramah, which is where Samuel lived, he built an altar. Again, not a replacement. It's an altar there of recognition of what, Rick? Of the immediacy of the presence of the Lord. This is so cool to me. Understand, right now, for 20 years, the Ark of the Covenant is gonna stay at the house of Avinadab. God said, I'll meet you there, above the mercy seat, above the Ark. And we're gonna talk about the Ark again on Sunday. I'll meet you there. But the tabernacle is in Shiloh. And that's where the offerings are made, at the, at the bronze altar by the high priest over there. Ark's here, tabernacle's there. Rama's here, and there's an altar that Samuel builds there. I'm confused. Where are we supposed to go to meet with the Lord? His presence is immediate. And Samuel, as a prophet of God, recognizes the immediacy of the presence of the Lord. Psalm 46, verse one. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. And then he puts a Selah. And the end of that same psalm is where we began tonight. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Count on it. You can trust him. Father, we thank you for your word tonight, carrying us through these chapters, I pray for. Lord, the application now of these things in our lives. I pray that you will increase our faith, Lord. That you will gather and hear the prayers of your people, the prayers of intercession. We call for a very specific intercession tonight. I pray, Lord, hear the prayers of your people. And we ask, Lord, that you will simply use us for your will and purposes in this place to be a light in the darkness, to shine the truth, to not shrink back, but to endure, even as your word says, until the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.